0: Well, uh, so interestingly enough, as you know, tonight, um, Franklin Graham is in Oxnard. They're doing a big prayer event there, and I know a number of folks uh, were in attendance. Uh, one of the key folks who's involved in that called and uh, uh, was inquiring about our Sunday night prayer service, and she was b- very encouraging, and I, I didn't have the heart to tell her that I haven't, as of late, attended. Um, Uh, because Sunday nights has been a bit difficult. Um, But she was commenting on it, and when we would do the Sunday night prayer service, specifically just to get the congregation together, it was amazing how many things happened. And my wife and I were driving as she was talking, and the last time she'd actually called, my wife and I were in the car together. And she's a very energetic, remarkable lady, uh, has a great, great um, heart to see prayer established. And one of the things I told her is I said, a congregational prayer service really won't take off unless the pastor attends. And that's not egotistically speaking. That's just simply how it works. I mean, it, it, they'll get a, a remnant, a handful of people to attend. but and, and I also told her one of the things that we experienced is that when you do a prayer service, it's going to start small and it'll start to grow over time. But what you're really going to see are uh, great accomplishments in the fellowship. And I think about this little church. Thank you, Tony. I think about this little church, how... Uh, so many wonderful things God's done as a result of our time of prayer. And I don't attribute it to anything other than that. And as I I got off the phone with her, I was deeply convicted. And one of the first things I did is I called Pastor Brett and I said, I really want to rearrange and figure out to do a congregational prayer service. We do one Sunday night um, uh, and and Pastor John oversees it. and, And we go over all the prayer requests but for me, Sunday nights is just not conducive. So when we get to the new facility, the very first thing I want to do is set a night of the week where we're doing simply a prayer service. Um, but then I added to uh, Pastor Brett's responsibilities. I said, I want to do either once or twice a month um, where all the pastors of the Conejo come and join for an evening of of simply prayer. and And part of that is... That we, and you notice this, I started to share with her some of the things that you find in a prayer service. So, the minute you put a prayer service together, this is, I'm just going to give you the outline. People love to talk. So, they spend the, an enormous amount of time, an inordinate, inordinate amount of time, uh, going over their, their prayer requests. And they want to raise their hand, and they want everyone to hear their prayer requests. They want to talk about the troubles they're having, and the things, and the struggles, and the... And then we go to the next person. And they go through it. And then by the time we're finished telling everybody about our story, we've told everybody about our story, but God. And we really just want to be heard. And then when you do a prayer service, you get pastors in the room. And then everybody brings their prayer church ministry, and they want to present their prayer church ministry, and they want you to pray over their prayer church ministry, and they start to network in their prayer church in the prayer service. And every one of those things destroys a prayer service absolutely devastates a prayer service. Another thing you have is that when you start a prayer service, you get people coming in um, and they they pray their funky theology and everybody has some funky theology but for for whatever reason, no matter what denomination you are, where you come from in the body of Christ, uh, the one thing God's given us that that crosses over all denominational lines as prayer. And we still manage to screw that up when we get in a room together to pray. Because we'll pray controversial scriptures that somebody's theology doesn't hold to. Um, and, and that will be their whole focal point. Or they'll have a pet theology or a pet scripture that they'll emphasize every time they pray. And, and that burns people out. So one of the things we always share is there's just simple things. and I told her these that really seem to work for us. Uh, you also get people who dominate in prayer. The minute they get an opportunity to have a mantle, they don't shut up. There's no caboose on the end of that prayer. It's just that train just keeps rolling. And you're just thinking, I just came to hear their personal devotion, and then I'll get to go home soon, hopefully sooner than soon. But apparently, they're not even close to remotely finished. And that just dwindles it. Um, and so what we say is a couple of little simple things. Uh, the first minute you're praying, we're praying with you. The second minute you're praying, we're praying for you. The third minute you're praying, we're praying against you, right? And we always say, put a caboose on the end of that prayer train and bring it home. And, and we want to emphasize these things, the simplicity of it. Uh, and, and we also point out that it's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense, right? You have to choose to be offended, correct? Hello? And so you can't offend a dead man. We've covered that. And we've been crucified with Christ. So if somebody is... And and the the other thing says, don't seek to offend, right? Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So you, you may know that the room you're part of is not conducive with the theology you hold to. Then try to keep something that would keep the unity together, right? Now, we know that when we come into a room and gather as a group of believers... What enters into the room is a group of believers that have a sin nature. And they're all selfish and self focused and self driven and self, 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 right? Good. So the way you do that is when the person's praying, you just, if they've offended you, overlook it. And if you're that person, do your best not to offend. And over time, it starts to build. And we put, you know, uh, J.M. Winor said that any great revival always begins with orchestrated prayer. And so when you had Jeremiah Lanfear in the second floor of the Dutch Reformed Church, 1857 in new york when this prayer movement took off they literally put 10 rules of of prayer and they just put them up there and those 10 rules kept everybody within the the parameters but you also don't want to stifle the spirit right because oftentimes we'll get into a room with folks and and we're saying we want to spend some time in prayer but really what they're saying is well this always let me just i'll i'm going to be candid it happens in a room with pastors Let's spend some time in prayer because we're pastors and that's what we do. You're like, all right, prayer. Uh, So let's just do popcorn prayers. Just one little sentence and then we'll get out of here. Well, that's kind of like, what's the point? You know, what are we going to throw bumper stickers up to the Lord? You know, hey, bumper sticker, bumper sticker, bumper sticker, let's go home. Bumper sticker, bumper sticker, let's go. So what's the balance? Because really what's evident in the church today is a lack of, of, of prayer. We preach on it, we talk about it, but we don't do it. And I have been wholly con- convicted this past week, especially from that phone call, that the Lord's emphasized on my heart a, a desperate need for prayer. And I'm glad because as as I've been uh, meditating on that, praying about that, spending time with the Lord in regards to that, and we come to First Corinthians chapter four, Paul emphasizes that, and we're going to take a look at it because he's going to distinguish um, with this idea. Of these folks that think they're amazing ministers, amazing ministers, and they laud themselves on their great accomplishments. And the church lauds itself on its great accomplishments. I mean, you just turn it on and you you can take a look. And we've got magazines that talk about the 10 largest churches in America, the 10 most effective ministries in America, the 10, 10, 10. And it's just like any other magazine. You open it up, whether it's Charisma or Christianity Today, and you open that up and you research, it goes, gosh, these people are successful. How do I get to be like that? How do I get to be like that? And I have news for you. You walk into any one of those churches, you look for a prayer meeting, and it will probably be non-existent or very small in relation to the the size of the church prayer is just not evident in the church today and what is prayer prayer is an act of faith where we're actually asking god what we should be doing in relation to his kingdom with his resources and we're interceding and praying in accordance with his word it's hard to pray in accordance with his word when we don't know his word and we'd rather do a thousand things and be busy than be prayerful and i love how the lord works um I was talking with a friend and it you know, it just seems in this season in life, God is, has just kind of shut down um all the excitement that comes with ministry. And and you're you're going every day through something that's familiar from the day before. And you always want some sort of excitement, but you know, we're waiting for the building to be completed. Every day I go out there, it looks the same as it did the day before. Frustrating. Right? And then I go to a council meeting and we're talking about something else and that's frustrating. And then we're coming in and you get another, and there's another need and another, and it's just frustrating. And we have another budget crisis and then we have a surplus of the budget, and then we have a need that calls and it becomes monotonous. And in the course of it, you think, God, what am I doing? Taking up time? Am I just sucking oxygen and on my way to glory? What, what do you have for us? Funny you should ask, Rob, because you haven't been asking lately. But we get so impressed with where we are, we're not excited about where he wants to take us. And so with that, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because Paul addresses it. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards. So please say servants and stewards. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We'll cover that in a moment. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes." who both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may uh, learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. I love that word because in the Greek, it, it literally means gas bag. And I can make some noises right now that would really help with that. That you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. So you just, you're just you puffed up and you're looking at yourself like you're special. And the reality is, I just want you to know what you look like. You're one big gas bag. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then he says, you are already full, you are already rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. He's being sarcastic if you're not catching it. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you. But as my beloved children, I warn you, and I love this about it, because he's looking at them as parents, and I've always wanted to write a book called Parenting Through Sarcasm, and I have just proven that the scriptures declare that sarcasm is legitimate in raising children. (laughs) For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. But some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or in love and a spirit of gentleness. And really what he's saying is, I'm coming, and I'm either going to go open up a can of whoop or we're going to have a love fest. It depends on if you're going to listen to my writing and adhere to it. And he's being pretty heavy here, and we'll cover it. But let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, as we come to this passage of Scripture, this chapter of First Corinthians, as Paul's writing to the church that, Lord, you have declared this picture of a steward, you've declared this picture of a servant, you've declared this picture of those who would consider themselves special, but in reality, according to your word, they're puffed up. And yet Paul describes this mystery, he also goes on to describe who he is and how they view him, and yet he says, you're not to judge me. And, and Lord, I, I just, I'm so thankful for this passage and the comfort it's brought my heart I pray that it do the same for all who are present and who would hear the teaching of this word through the medians that you've given us. And so, Lord, we commit it into your care. And Holy Spirit, please, lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, uh, in in verses 7 and 8, Paul says... um, For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you you had not received it? In verse 8, you are already already full, you're already rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. And I want to point out, don't miss the amazing sarcasm in these two verses. And I, like I said earlier, I'm really blessed by that because I, I find sarcasm to be an unbelievable gift from the Lord. Does anyone else enjoy sarcasm? Yeah, right. Sarcasm. So here what Paul's saying is you think you're authoritative. You think that you, you have it all going on. But look at the condition you're in. And And one of the reasons why I had... Uh, missed it is uh, the chapter fours. I printed out chapter five. And Paul says, you think you're authoritative, but look at the mess you're in. And in chapter five, which is what I wanted to show you, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up uh, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I am indeed... Uh, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. And he goes on to declare all the mess that they're in. And this church is screwed up, but they think, they think that they have it all going on. They think that they're accomplishing great and amazing tasks. And they think they're unbelievably intellectual. Now, in Corinth, as we've covered, it was a hotbed of intell- intellectualism. Uh, the Romans, the, it was a Greek hotbed. Together, they'd had this library, and of course, they had this temple that we've covered a thousand times in previous uh, passages. But they were dealing with theory and, and not reality. They were totally involved in this intellectual ascent, and they thought themselves to have redesigned or or, or improved upon, upon what Paul had taught them for a year and a half as he discipled them. Now, Paul, multiple degrees, unbelievable, but these wealthy people and all the trappings of the community come in in Paul's absence as he's in Ephesus and he's traveling throughout all of his different missionary journeys. He's been away from the church at Corinth, even though he spent a year and a half there. And in that period of time, they just became enamored with the ways of the world. I mean, they really have a cool system of roads. These Romans do. And they've got a library and, and aqueducts. I mean, these are very intelligent people and their system, the way they've organized their government. And the, I mean, just look at the centurions, the structure of the centurions. I mean, if we followed their legal system similar to the way, and they, you know, they don't really have ministers, but they have psychologists. They have people that you can go in, soothsayers that can tell the future. We can't necessarily tell the future. These are things. And you know what? We all have sexual bends. We all have sexual appetites. It's not so bad just to engage them a little bit, a little bit beyond. I mean, if Paul's talking about salvation by grace through faith, a gift of God, not of works, then we can kind of dabble in that. And we can have our, you know, get out of jail free card and endeavor, you know, de- indulge a little bit. It's okay, right? Well, then why do you all still do it? We say no, but you still struggle. I asked you before, those things that you don't want to do, do you do those? Let's try that again. Those things that you don't want to do, do you do those? Those things you want to do, are you doing those? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death. Now, granted, we're doing more of the things that we, we, we really want to do by the Spirit of God, yes? And Lord willing, we're doing less of the things that we don't want to do, but we still do them, yes? Yes. And we look at this and we think, how can we go on? We're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. The term hypocrite is not somebody who sets a standard for themselves and fails to achieve it. That's just goal-oriented. A hypocrite who is someone who knows the truth and deliberately steers people away from the truth in order to protect their position. You got that? We know this is the right, well, I'm not sure which hand it was now, the things that we want to do. We know that that is the right thing to do, and we do want to do those. I want to lose weight, but I, and I don't want to eat things that are bad for me, but I eat things that are bad for me, and thus I'm not losing weight. Tracking me? I still want to lose weight, but for what reason? Well, I want to be skinnier, and people find, okay, now that's a problem. What are your motivations in relation to that? And why are you doing this? Why do you feel that food needs to be a comfort? What's missing in your life? And, and the Romans had ways of addressing it. Every, every culture has a way of addressing it. In some cases, they just made them gods. I have a problem with alcohol. No, you don't. You're just worshiping the god Bacchus. He's the god of alcohol. I have a problem with pornography. No, you don't. You're just worshiping at the altar of Aphrodite. You're just a worshiper. And that's the way the Romans dealt with it. Well, in Paul's absence, the church is saying, can't we blend the two? And look what we've done. We've got more people attending. Our, 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 our communion services are way more fun now, aren't they? They were drinking at the communion service. I thought you'd laugh at that. And Paul lays this out in complete sarcasm. And he says, you're all talk and intellect, and your religion is just theory without reality. You're missing something here. He said in the passage, for the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. And the one thing, that's the one thing you don't have and we'll see that at the end of the chapter. Paul says in in verses 18 and 19, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up but the power. And the church was so proud of what they had accomplished and they thought that they, they had everything going on in this church. They really were impressed with themselves. We had been discipled by the apostle. Well, now we've got Apollos. Now we've got Cephas. Now we've got Paul coming. We are such an amazing church. But the one thing that they were destitute of was the Holy Spirit power and his authority. Their lives weren't, they, their lives weren't operating in that context. I think about the church today. Um... Why do a lot of people pick a church to attend? And don't answer it. I just want you to think quietly in your own mind. Why do people pick a church to attend? Uh, Why do people watch certain preachers on television? Why do people read certain books written by certain authors that are pastors? What's, What's pretty clear is that we're impressed with their competency of the material, they're competent. When I say competent, they're articulate. Uh, they, 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 knew, they know how to use rhetoric, uh, intonation. Um, you, you talk about their, their uh, hermeneutics, which is their way to preach. Hermes is the mythical creature between the gods and man that would communicate these heavenly truths. And their hermeneutics, they keep you attentive. On a Wednesday night, that's hard to do. And, and I don't blame you guys. Every Wednesday night, it's like a handful going, oh, this is... We're going to get through. I'm going to do it. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. That's why Wednesday nights are hard to cover. And that's why most people don't do Wednesday nights. Because, But, there, but this is a midweek. This is where we get a chance to get recharging, make it to the back end of the week. And we fellowship with together. And a lot of early churches, they met every day of the week. But you're looking for competency. You're looking for this idea. But what's happening is we expect the competency of the pastor to overcome the lack of transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We become so impressed with their hairdo and their skinny jeans, which I'm not wearing, but I have a pair, and, and, and they look youthful, and they have this way, and this, this becomes for us success in the church. I, I was really moved by Joe Martin, Nancy's husband, when he said, in Dallas, here in California, there's not a church on every corner. In California, we don't have a church on every corner. In Dallas, there's a church on every corner. And next to that corner, there's a church on the corner or even on the alleyway. There's churches everywhere. And if you want to be a pastor and you want to be, quote unquote, successful, you've got to be competent. Managerially, you have to understand social media. You have to have a psychology degree. You've got to be able to compete competency in every level of society if you're going to, and the attrition rate is awful. And the amazing thing is, no matter how many churches you have and how competent the pastors are, where's the Holy Spirit power? Where's the presence of prayer? And, and are these lives doing really well? Why aren't we changing culture if the church is so powerful? Four of the 10 largest churches in America in Houston. They can't even get a Christian elected as mayor. They have a lesbian that was elected for mayor with 8% of the vote. Where's the power of the church? And Paul points this out, and he just says that, that they are... He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, uh, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all speech, utterance, and in all knowledge. But in verse 17, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The wisdom of God is not something foolish, outmoded um, by civilization or education. God's not saying, look... If you want God's wisdom, you can't go to school. If you don't want God's wisdom, you can't understand his history and civilization. No, 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 no. What, what Paul's saying is that, that, that the wisdom of God is understanding all of these different ologies and histories, all these different aspects in the light of God, and to see how it all incorporates and comes together. And I, I love what one author says. He says, the message of the cross in all its fullness is the message of God's wisdom and authority. Now, here's the problem. We don't teach in schools with God's wisdom and his authority. We don't teach in our public places with his wisdom and his authority. That's the fullness of God. That's the transformative power. And the church doesn't demand that it be taught. And so in this passage of scripture, Paul points out for all these people in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, there's two roads. Now, pay attention to these. Here's the first road, the self-life. The self-life, and I'm gonna describe it for you. It seeks after the intellectual entertainment and wins the applause of men and ends in corruption, failure, and defeat. Let me repeat it. It seeks after the intellectual entertainment and wins the applause of men and ends in corruption, failure, and defeat. That depicts the church in America today. And I don't care who the pastor is, if he is honest, he has always struggled to deny that self life. Every pastor wants the praise of man, the applause of man. They they, they want this. In intellectual entertainment. We want to be the coolest preacher on the face of the earth. We want our insights and our applications and our observations to be unlike any of the millions who've gone before us. Like we have this new corner on the market and we know how to do church better than the next guy. And we want you to tell us how well we're doing. And I have news for you. That is so miserable and awful. I tried it. I tried it. When we got to the church in the skyline, we got to three services full. I'm thinking the next thing we're going to do is we're going to get a bigger church. And then, and then we'll get to three services full and we'll get a bigger church. And, and then, and then we'll, we'll do radio. That's a, I said, I got to get on the radio. And then television. And then Christian famous. And I remember when we got to three services full at skyline and I realized this is just... This is exponentially increasing people with problems. Are you tracking me? Because the smaller church, you know, is intimate, and they come up, and they, can I have an hour of your time? Pastor, pastor, I know you're busy. Can I have a... Pastor, I know that I'm... A, you know, I just, and you're, yeah, yeah, I'm the pastor. I want to... Absolutely, and, and you're, you know... And then it grows. And so do the needy people. And you're at three services and you're you're thinking the only way to go to a larger church is I need to have my own garage, my own car, my own office, my own hallway, so that no one ever sees me or can even come near me and I can just be on a screen and we're going to be perfect. Does that make sense? And that's the only way you can survive. And I'll have everybody else do all the counseling. Because It was never intended to be like that. And it's exhausting. And that's why the attrition rate's so high. But you want the applause of men. And then I thought, well, if the church remains small, this is the other struggle you have. Are you avoiding where God wants you to go to be challenged? That's another aspect to it. And so you you have this constant struggle And this is the self-life that always has to be in check. And most people just go, I'm going that way. I want the applause of men. I didn't have a daddy growing up, and I'm going to need all kinds of affirmation. And most pastors are wounded, so let's just send them out there. And what a great opportunity to have people tell you every Sunday how absolutely wonderful you are. And what a terrible job when you're doing terrible, and everyone wants to tell you how terrible you are. And that's where Paul brings us, because this other area that he's directing all the church at Corinth to is because they become so puffed up, so full of themselves, and, and and this one author says, uh, of a road, he says, uh, this other road leads a man by the way of the cross, the path of unpopularity, making himself a spectacle of the world, criticized, derided, persecuted, considered out of date and old-fashioned. You know, it's... It's one thing to embrace old-fashioned ideas when you're young because people think you're just revisiting and you're nostalgic or you're retro. But it's another one to be over 50 and revisiting and re-engaging old-fashioned content—you know, things that have worked for the church. People just think, oh, he's settling in. But do we ever tire of the cross? What does progressive mean? It means we progress beyond the simplicity of the gospel. Does progressive mean that we take out <laughs> Talking about blood in the in the text because we're saved by the the blood that was shed upon the cross. Does progressive mean that we don't want to talk about sin? It's amazing that we're more fearful in the church today. We're more fearful of holiness than we are of sin. Ponder that. Holiness is not even anything we're even remotely concerned with. Holiness means set apart. I was sharing that. The favorite cup, dirty on the inside. It's still my favorite vessel. I love it. I can't use it till I clean it. It's still my favorite. I'm waiting to use it. As soon as it's clean, I can't wait to use it. I now have a ball jar that I use with my lemon water, and I love that. And if they're dirty and I'm missing one, I'm bummed. I've got to wait for it to be cleaned. And then, it's my favorite vessel. And how many of us are on the shelf? Because we, we don't care about holiness. We're more excited about sin. Sin is something that we're, it just, we don't think much about it. We're not afraid of it. How close can I get to the edge and and still be saved the the questions I get are, can I still divorce my wife and am i if I divorce my wife, can I still go to heaven? What an awful question how did how did we how did we get to this place and I think about this idea that you know Paul. Paul's getting beat up because they're almost looking at him like he's too legalistic. And to come into this church, the last thing that the church at Corinth wanted was anything pertaining to setting themselves apart to be used for God. They didn't want to give up. Um, Look at... um, Let me find my scripture here. Look at verse... I want to take a look at verse 9. Here it is. Paul says in uh, verse 9... For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. I think the church, that right there, nobody's going to sign up for that. You cannot get a church growth seminar and add that as one of the benefits. And and Paul's telling the church at Corinth, I I just want to tell you, I think that God's displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made spectacles to the world, both the angels and the men. We're fools for Christ's sake. I mean, we're condemned to death. And I, and I think if we look at that, we're like, you know what, I, I, I want that. But tr- I think truthfully, if we look at our lives, we want kind of a little bit of that. Not all of that, just a little bit. I want to be in the middle of the road. I I want a little bit of praise and popularity, just a little bit. I just want a little bit. A little bit of recognition, a little bit of thanks. I don't mind to suffer a little bit, but I, I want to make sure that my name's in the paper. I want some applause of men. But I also want the anointing of God and the authority of God. I want, I want to have some sort of substance that's supernatural. I want the power without the cost. Can I have that? I'll preach it, thanks. Can, can, we, can I have that? And that's, that's the trouble. And Paul says this is what the church at Corinth wanted, is they wanted the power without the cost. And he pointed out in this sarcasm that this was their issue and that they were, they were in all kinds of trouble. Um and I, I, for the sake of time, because we're limited, I wanted to take a look at a few words in the passage. Um, let me take you back to verse, uh, the first five verse. Here we go. Take a look at this. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Paul starts this, this chapter to the church at Corinth, and he uses these terms, and we've covered them a little bit, but he really emphasizes it here because he can address them as being puffed up, and he wants to show them what has substance. And he uses two words that I had you repeat, and one was called a, a servant, and the other was called a steward. And, um, and I want to read this to you. Paul says, let a man so consider us as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God moreover is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And as I've told you before, the, the, word, the word for servant translated is under rower. And I, I want to give you pictures of it. Uh, I found this, that one. I thought that was cool. Under rower, Charlton Heston, he's such a cool looking dude. That's an under rower. You, you can't you can't see anything. You don't know where you're going. I, I got a little cartoon picture of it. Although they kind of have a convertible, they manned an oar. And I want I want you to see the contrast of these. This is kind of another picture. That's what a galley looked like. So there were a couple of decks of under rowers, and they and then you had the house stewards. These were slaves within, within the community. So I want to I take a look at some of these. Um, here's a picture of a, of, a, of a servant, this under rower. It refers to the slaves who sat below deck and manned an oar. This was the means by which a ship was pushed through the sea. I showed you Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur. He was sentenced to be a slave under such a ship. And the slave was chained to the oar chained to the oar. I kind of like that because I have to be candid with you. In 18 years of ministry at this church, there's, and this is a secret between us, don't tell the church, okay? There's been times I really wanted to leave. I just didn't want to do it anymore. It wasn't your guys' fault. You just get to a place where you go, I and I was talking to uh, Tim Maddox, our missionary in Cyprus, and, and he, was, you know, he, was, he was sharing, and he just said, there's times I get frustrated and angry at God, and I go, be careful. He goes, well, it just doesn't seem like he understands my sacrifice. I go, oh, bro, stop. You don't know where you're going on that one. I said, yeah, don't get angry at the Lord. It's, you can't do that. I said, let's just back up the bus and take a look at something. Do you remember where the Lord found you? You were a heroin addict in prison with hepatitis. Do you remember that? Yeah. And you couldn't find a ministry to suit you and you had no skills? Yeah. And he he took you to Russia and there was no ministry that would take you and yet God opened up a door to Russia? Yeah. And you didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of finding a godly woman and he brought you one? Yeah and you got two daughters, and yeah. Now you're overseeing an entire ministry in Cyprus, and yeah. And you want to quit? Here's the problem. There's nothing else you can do. Because you're just like me. You're a loser. I mean, what skills do we have, Tim? That we can talk? I mean, that I can... I can print out copies? I mean really, what skills do you have Tim? You can draw? We don't have any skills. And look where God's placed you. You have the privilege to witness transforming of lives. And when you get out of line, he has this uncanny ability of humbling you and bringing you to your knees and making, making boundaries run so you can't run anywhere. Because you're just like me, you're a runner. Do you realize how he's blessed us, Tim? Look at our families. Did you ever think you'd be this blessed? No. And I love that fact that God, when you're an under rower, he chained you to that oar. So if you feel like you're trapped, praise the Lord. I mean, I'm stuck to that oar. I can't leave you guys. I mean, you want me to go talk to him, get the key, do something. I just can't get off this oar. I thought that was a cool picture. I just wanted to share that with you. (laughs) The other cool thing is, when you're an under rower and you're chained to the oar, you're not the master of the ship. Jesus is the master of the ship. He's the captain. And this is what's cool about us as servants. We're his property. The captain had property over all the slaves in the bottom of the ship. We're chained to our oar, and we're his property. And the one function, and I love this because it makes life so simple for me. I like simplicity. I love simplicity. I have one function in this life, and that's to serve the captain of the ship. My oar, captain, yes, sir. I don't want to do it anymore. I can't get off the oar. This is what I'm doing. Now, unlike the, the vileness of the underbelly of a Roman galley and the whipping and all these things, thats that doesn't even remotely depict what it's like to serve the Lord. Because with all this comes blessings and, and unbelievable excitement through life. And, and then um, this is also considered the lowest cast of slave as an under rower. These were folks that had no hope or future. They, they were finished, and they expected them to die in transit. They expected them to die. I, I picked up a couple of other things I wanted to share with you there, apropos. Um, uh, oh, let, let's look at it this way, because we came to this one. This is another picture. This is where we get the word steward, and I picked up some thoughts in regards to steward. Steward was a household slave but a slave who was instructed to manage the master's household. Uh, Do you remember uh, uh, Joseph? Do you guys remember Joseph? In the the book of Genesis, he was in Genesis 37, and Joseph uh, was put under Potiphar's, uh, he he was the steward, he was the house manager of Potiphar's uh, home. He was in charge of everything. Potiphar was in charge, and he entrusted Joseph to be the steward of his house, and then Potiphar's wife, um, she's a cougar, and she hits on him. She, she, settle down, Bailey. Again, settle down. He he was hitting on. Uh, she was hitting on 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 Joseph, and she was married to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife. That's we don't know her name. And she pulled. She took his clothes, his garment off. And this is a young kid. You know, and Potiphar was rich. And I imagine in the Egyptian culture, he he married, you know, probably someone beautiful and younger than him. That was the culture. And she's hidden on him. And his comment was, I can't do this. I have been entrusted to your husband's household. I can't do this to my master. now, do we have that same mindset with an invisible God? We know Potiphar's going to come home and the word's going to get out and other servants are going to talk about what Potiphar's wife did. And, but this one, you know, you, you, you're, no one's going to know. You get to get away with it. Except for, does God really see? Are, are we more afraid of holiness than we are of sin? Because for us, He is the master of the house, we're the steward. Can we do that to the master? You know, I tell this to younger guys and gals. When you're dating, that, you know, you treat each other like brother and sister. Don't do anything with them that you wouldn't do with a brother or a sister. And 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 the idea is until God says they're yours, you you're a steward. and, And that 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 daughter belongs to that father. Until he sees in you the capability of caring for her and gives you his permission, because he's been entrusted by God with that. That's a steward. And and Joseph understood. He understood this concept of being a steward. He was a steward over Potiphar's uh, over all of his household. And then the last thing I want to do, and then we'll spend some time, kind of taking questions. Um. Paul reveal, uh, revealed in the passage this idea of the mystery of God, and he, and he, he pointed it out. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, and I wanted to describe to you what that mystery is. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The idea is his obedience through faith that we take God at his word and we obey him. And, and, and Paul says that we have been made stewards over this truth. Let a man so consider us as, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's what it says in Romans 16. A steward has many things he's responsible for. He's responsible for safeguarding his master's home, property and family. If you're a parent, you can't blame the teacher. You can't blame the other students or the school or the principal. You can't blame them. We have been made responsible for the safeguard of the master's home, his property, and his family. He's responsible to see that everyone is fed on time. Man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. We're to teach our children work ethics, we're to show them how wealth is created or to show them that you don't get anything free in life, or to show them that you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat. Michelle and I were coming back, and it frustrated the daylights out of me. We go into the In-N-Out Burger in Simi Valley. We'd been, we drove all the way from Las Vegas. We pull into the In-N-Out Burger in Simi Valley. We order our meal we get our cups from the meal deal and you get a cup, right? A medium cup. We over get it. And then we sit down and we look around. And they, they ask, you know, there's water cups. You know the clear water cups? I, I probably saw 10 to 15 water cups all filled with soda. The parents were doing it and the kids were doing it and they're all drinking. And, and you're thinking, oh, it's, let it go, Rob. It's stealing. And what bugged me is the parents are teaching the kids how to steal, Stop it. It's a destruction of culture. That's legalistic. It's destructive of their lives. This is what we've been entrusted as stewards of, especially of a culture. Stand for those things. You know, as we said on Sunday, we've tried everything. Let's try God. Let's try honoring his commandments. We're to, we're to take care of our families. Look, you remember the story I told you when I'm going into the Starbucks and the kid says, can I have, a, I have some money? And I said, if you tell me what money is, I'll give you some money. He says, it's what you need to buy stuff with. I said, no, no, it's not. And I walked in and he said, well, wait, what is it? And I said, well, since you asked me, you want to learn, I'll buy you something to eat while you're learning. And so we sat down and I said, money is the representation of your contribution to society. You've made no contribution, thus you have no money. And I'm buying food for you with my money because I made a contribution out of my benevolence. You think that I owe you something, but you have been sitting here and you are capable of working and you are not, and nobody owes you anything there's lives out there. Wealth is created when you are benefiting someone. Go mow widow Johnson's yard and you will have earned money because it will be a representation of the contribution you've made to society. We become so entitled, we expect something to be given to us. And this is the idea of a steward. You work hard. You take care of his home. You take care of his kingdom. You don't steal from him, right? Potiphar didn't steal his wife and he didn't steal any of his goods, and we don't do that either. And we don't steal from any of the other people either. Socialism is a cure to everything. No, it's not. You're stealing and you're coveting. That's what socialism is. Go work. And this is that picture. We're a steward of a household. We're stewards of the gospel. And we must be faithful. Faithful means we don't let people get away with it. We call them on account. The steward and the head of the household has to go make a point. I'll tell you what I'm grieved by. I didn't fix it in and out. Maybe mad. I will next time. People think that pastors and priests and ministers are the stewards of the church. You're paid to do that. Well, this says anyone indwelt by the Holy Spirit is a steward. So, meow, meow. <laughs> But we hired the pastor. We hired the preacher. We hired the minister. So he's responsible for that stuff. I don't want to do all the dirty work. I don't want to get a mop. That's not my responsibility, it's his responsibility. The Great Commission applies to everyone where to go and make disciples of all nations. That's our our calling, we're all stewards. And one of the reasons why the church was so screwed up is they weren't listening to Timothy. Uh, Let him preach the word. He does his book report on Sunday, I'm gonna do my deal. This is applicable to all of us. As a minister, as a slave, as a steward, we're responsible to Christ only. We're not responsible to a human agency, not to another individual, not to a human court, not before a church's congregation. He's not even responsible to himself. He's only responsible to his master, Jesus Christ. I'm gonna tell you a secret about ministry. If you ever wanna go into full-time ministry, which is really what you're supposed to be doing, but if you wanna go into paid ministry, and you're gonna oversee this, and people are gonna more strictly judge you and your family, I wanna help you with something of vital importance. If you know anyone in ministry, I'm gonna give you the best secret I can give to anyone. It doesn't matter what anyone says or how they feel about you. You weren't in charge of them coming. You're not in charge of them leaving. I'm not in charge of the, of the growth of the church. Two things. One is I can't take credit for when it does grow. And the other exciting thing is I don't have to take credit for when it shrinks. I don't have to, be, I don't have to care what you think about me. Feel about me if I remembered your birthday or your anniversary, if you want to judge what I said and take it to dinner and you and your spouse argue and say, well, Pastor Rob said, and I become the, the tennis ball in your, in your tennis match. Or, or if you want to justify your life by examining my family and saying, we're better than all those things, mm-hmm. not my problem. Very comforting. Because I am responsible to one person he won't unhook the chains because there's days when you're talking like that, that really, and you're eating, Pastor. And I want to unhook the chain and I want to go away. And the Lord says, you're right where I want you to be. Keep rowing. There's only one voice I have to listen to. It's the Lord's. And the days where I'm not listening to him and I'm being Rob McCoy and, I'm, and people are leaving the church because I, you know, there's no presence of Christ. The Lord has a way of getting my attention. One of the things I love about a church is that it is affected by... My walk has a direct result of of the congregation. If we're praying people, I need to be a praying person. If we have a vision, I I have to be honoring and receiving and waiting upon the Lord for that vision. If, If people... Don't want to go there and they leave because we're, we're changing a direction. I have to remain steadfast in that regardless of who peels off. Just keep the course. And those are exciting times because if you're pressing into the Lord and all you need to do is listen to his voice, it is so freeing. And I say that as a minister, but I want to conclude by helping you. It's really good in life. it's amazing how you can there are those people in life there are those people in life that you haven't been around them in a while and then you get around them and you just realize why you didn't want to be around them in a while because somehow they have this subtle way where they've taken it to a science where they make you feel inadequate anybody ever had anyone like that in their life? or is it just me? And you go through that and you think, hmm, God, why didn't you make two of them and none of me? And there's just so much better. And the Lord said, I gave you an oar. Keep rowing. And what happens is, you stop hearing their voice and you hear his voice. And one of the reasons why you struggle with your identity and you struggle with your The perception of who you think you are is because you're listening to the wrong voice. Listen to the Lord. It's freeing, it's a blessing. And I, I want I want to leave you with this. Paul goes through this whole picture of judgment, and he lists four different areas in it in the passage. I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of it for the sake of time. He goes, You don't judge me, I don't even judge myself. There's only one person who judges me, and that's the Lord. And he has counted me worthy. I can only stand here in front of you for one reason because Christ has considered me worthy. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And we do this all the time to ourselves. We judge ourselves. I'm so glad you don't get to hear my private conversations with me and myself. (laughs) You were so stupid. What were you thinking? What an idiot. You ever done that one? Oh, you are, man. Look out, here comes Tundaleo. You, you just, whatever it is, you have more chins than a Chinese phone book. Well, your hair is so gray. What do you just, look at you. And you hear that voice. And it's it's not any voice, it's your voice. Just lighten yourself up. Why, why did you preach that on Easter Sunday? What were you thinking? The voices. And I love this. Time out. whoa. Who are you listening to? Me. You have no authority. Yeah. You're right. I have no authority. It's kind of humbling, but comforting all at the same time. But did you hear what so-and-so said? Whoa, 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 whoa. They don't have any authority. Come to think of it, they don't. That's very freeing. I stand here Because the Lord has counted me worthy. And he says, Rob, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have cleansed you of all unrighteousness. I've cast your sin as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. You are my mouthpiece. I'll use you as I see fit. You're not in charge of the growth nor the decline. You're in charge of one thing, obeying me. If I tell you I want to go water skiing, you'll row faster a joke. <laughs> if, if I tell you what I want you to do, you just do it. And you trust me. That's faith. And that's the mystery. Obedience and faith. That's it. And the rest is up to me. I'll take care of you. Seek me first. I'll add everything else to you. Everyone in the room and the person who most struggles with it is me but all of us do you really want to be affirmed by your accomplishments look at what you've done how special you are look how handsome you are how articulate you are that doesn't move a church anywhere faithfulness and obedience it's, it's not that we are so moved by our competency. Don't come to the church because the pastor's competent. Come to the church because he's broken and surrendered. Prayer has got to come back to this church. We're doing a lot of good things and we're really impressed with the good things we're doing. And the Lord showed me, you're kind of tired, aren't you? I am kind of not very much fun running it. No, it isn't. Why don't we go back to doing it my way where you just rest in me by prayer? And I thought, you know what? I'd like to do that, more. So that's where we're going. We're going back to prayer. Amen?